Um, The passage can be found on Luke chapter 12 and verse 13, which is on page 1045. Meanwhile, oh, sorry, wait. (laughs) Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns, and there there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. And, uh, let's pray. Name above all names, worthy of all praise. Lord God, help us to see your purposes in your word and to understand. Amen. Right, hopefully everything will now work. Um, So this passage is the second in a series about mistaken thinking. Last week, uh, Tim spoke about the mistake of misunderstanding the good news that by dying on the cross, Jesus has paid for our sins and rescued us from death. This week, we're considering the mistake of looking to this world for our security and investing in the wrong future. First, a story of a man who was rich, but anything but a fool. Can you see that? He's a bit squashed. Whoops. He's a bit squashed. This is Sir John Lang. He was a builder and a businessman from Carlisle. He became a Christian at the age of seven. His firm, John Lang PLC, built lots of landmarks around the UK and around the world. It wasn't always like that, though. In 1909, the business that he took over from his father uh, was close to collapse, and he was close to despair, and he went for a walk up in the Lake District near, near where he lived. He turned to God for help praying that he, would sh- that he would show him a way through his troubles. And he resolved to make God a partner in his firm, and he wrote himself a program for life that he carried with him for the rest of his days. He introduced many innovations in the way he ran his company that we'd recognise as normal, you know, good business practice these days, but then they were exceptionally enlightened. And, and this is the early 20th century, So he introduced paid holidays and even employee share ownership. You know, back in those days, you know, in the early 1900s, building workers had a pretty hard time. They didn't have cement mixers and cranes and diggers. Everything had to be done with muscle power and in any weather. 
Very few employers thought about their workers. Um, businesses operated on the principle of buy it cheap, sell it expensive. John Lang realised that this was not the way Jesus wanted a business run. It wasn't what he taught. One account tells of a workman on one of his building sites. He was hard at work winding a crane, but Lang saw him and realised that he didn't really have his mind on his work. So he went and asked him, what's up? And he said, you know, you're not looking well. And the man explained that his wife was ill at home and that before coming to work in the morning, he had to see to the kids, do the housework, and then get into work and do a whole day's work. So he was exhausted and worried about his, ch- his children and his wife. <coughs> so Lang said, okay, off he went. He, he went off and left the site for an hour or two and then came back again and said, said to this man, you're wanted at home. Now go home and take two, day, two weeks off paid. And he did, he went home and he found five pounds on his, t- on his kitchen table because Lang had been there and seen what was, seen what was up. Um, another story has his, his, a couple of his workers on one of his sites who were eating, they, were, they went to a canteen and uh, the, uh, the food was terrible, the rain was coming in through the roof and they were complaining about the, the, the ghastly food and then saying... Apparently, the old man's coming here, this, uh, coming here today and said, but I bet he won't be eating in here. They didn't notice the man in the old raincoat who was sitting by side listening, listening to what they were saying. But the next day, the roof was fixed and the food was improved. This was a man who um, cared about the men who worked for him because he didn't see himself as being superior to them. He, cared, he found out how his men lived and he did his best to improve their lives. Fifty years after he had prayed for God's help, his firm, Lang, and it's still around today, was a leader in the construction industry. It built motorways, it built power stations, airfields, and loads of houses, and even Coventry Cathedral. Yet when he died in 1978, he was 99 years old, his personal possessions totaled £371. He'd earned millions, given it all away. At first sight, the passage we've just heard about starts with a rather odd interruption to Jesus' teaching. A man calls out from the crowd to ask him to intervene in an inheritance dispute in his family. I mean, was it normal for domestic and financial disputes to be brought before the local rabbi? Well, as you do at times like these, I look this up in the Mishnah which is the Jewish legal text. No, I do not have a copy of the Mishnah at home. It's on the internet, in case you want to find out. Um, And I just, yeah, never mind. But apparently, this is actually quite normal. Rabbis were, and still are, legal authorities. Uh, And this seems to go back a long time, because even Moses had to appoint subordinates to handle disputes among his people. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So perhaps this wasn't that unusual... But Jesus challenges the petitioner and us with this question. Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? Hmm. Indeed. Who? Well, God the Father did. Jesus reminds us that he is appointed judge and arbiter over us and that we, therefore, are accountable to him. He is Lord of all. 
Now, the parable. A wealthy man has enough produce from his land to stash it all away in a barn and plan for a comfortable retirement. Now, to the poor peasants who heard this and made up most of the population uh, at that time, this would have been a fantasy. These were the people who worked the land and who worked for rich landowners like this guy. They would have known that to get that rich, this man would have had an army of people working for him, toiling to fill up his barns and build bigger barns. And for what? So that he could put his feet up, relax, and enjoy an easy life. And he says to himself, I'll say to myself, literally it translates as, say to my soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Eat, drink, be merry. Mm, God has different ideas. You fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And Jesus finishes saying, this is how it is with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. This parable is a stark warning against wrong priorities, about getting the importance of things the wrong way round. It's critical for us to understand what God's priorities are and to arrange our lives accordingly. What is the petitioner, you know, the man who called out from the crowd, what's he concerned with? What did he value? What were his priorities? He feels grieved because he doesn't think he's getting a fair share of the family wealth. Perhaps his father had died recently and he's a younger son, so he's not entitled to as much of his father's estate. Maybe he's been working hard for the family farm or firm for years and thinks he deserves more. Maybe he's just greedy. Jesus knows his heart. His principal concern is stuff. The motivation of that petitioner is the same as that of the rich fool in the parable. They're interchangeable. Their minds, their souls, were firmly fixed in this world. Their perspective was limited to material things perhaps out of fear of poverty or love of comfort, or both. They were only concerned with their wealth. It's sobering to me that the rich fool seems so much like me in my worst moments, worrying about paying off the mortgage or filling up the pension fund. He had a retirement plan, of course, that was a rarity in those days. <coughs> Re retirement, as we know it, is really a post-industrial idea that came out of mass production, mass production industries, where older and slower workers could slow down the line and reduce the productivity of the factory. I mean, it could actually be profitable to pension them off. Now, our modern culture of retirement, rest in later years, would have been quite alien to the first hearers of this parable, Few people would ever amass the resources to spend their last years in leisure. And perhaps the closest thing we can relate to in this way is when people take early retirement, when we collect enough in our barns, 
we call them pension funds, to be able to stop work and start sailing around the world at an early age. However, there are dangers in idleness. People who retire without a clear purpose to their lives can be at risk of earlier death. On the other hand, there are opportunities, the so-called third age, in which people who've been in full-time work, building their careers and bringing up their children for years, can explore new opportunities to learn and contribute to their communities as their need to work for money diminishes. We can't make an exact parallel to the financial decisions that someone would make in the first century, but we can look at the motivation. The motivation applies to us too, for absolutely for sure. So let's ask a few questions. What should the rich fool have valued? What should he have invested in? How would valuing the right things have changed his priorities? And how would that change his investments and the way he disposed of his wealth? Now, I could reread those. What should we value? What should we invest in? How will valuing the right things change our priorities? And how would that change our investments and the way we dispose of our wealth? What should we invest in? Right, first, let's talk about money. Now, money is actually one of mankind's cleverer inventions. It's a means of working out the value of unrelated effort or things relative to one another. For example, you turn the effort of a paper round into presents for mum's birthday. Or you collect together some of the profit and benefit of the work from farmers and engineers and builders and bankers and so on. And you spend them on things that benefit everyone, like roads or hospitals or schools. And we call that tax, right? But that's what it's for, and it uses money. Currency and commerce have given rise to immensely complicated laws and mechanisms and valuing systems for balancing different kinds of value against one another, like stock markets and currency exchanges. Like so many human inventions, money has a good side and a dark side. Money can be dangerous. Money values stuff, the material of this world, and nothing else. It cannot assign a price to a cuddle, to a kind word, to a well-timed cup of tea, to a friendship, to a memory. Trouble ensues when we value ourselves in monetary terms, which we inevitably do. We start by comparing our wealth to our friends and our family. We ask, am I keeping up? We tell ourselves that we must have that new car or that gadget or that, um, I've lost my place, or that, that dress or whatever. Because we'll look better, we'll look richer, we'll feel happier, more successful, more worthwhile. We look at our net worth and we fret over our credit rating. Now companies encourage this type of thinking. It's to their benefit that you think you must have the latest fashionable accessory or car or phone or whatever. 
so that you serve their interests by giving your money to them. Even our identities are traded by big corporations who use them to target us with their marketing so that we can give them more of the stuff. I think they say money makes the world go round. Mm. The worst consequence of this is slavery, in which people are treated merely as a commodity and their true value, as images of God, is forgotten. Would, would money be necessary in an unfallen world? Put another way, will there be money in heaven? It's an absurd question. Of course there won't. Where does value or worth come from in heaven? It comes directly from God himself. Do we think that we'll want to grasp at God the way we grasp at stuff here? No. It will be our great desire to share the infinite generosity of our God with one another. Everything we do will be done to glorify him. Economics, for want of a better word, will be completely inverted. No longer will we strive to make ourselves richer and more important, but we will live to glorify our God for who he is and what he is worth. No longer will we value ourselves in any measurable way, because God is all worth and gives us all our value. And it will be enough. What a relief. A prevalent Jewish view of wealth in Jesus' time was that it was a reward for virtue or righteousness. But this failed to recognize that wealth is a gift from God and that it is imperative to use it rightly. First, to be thankful for it. (coughs) To understand that the source of wealth is not ourselves, as this rich fool thought, but that it came from God's provision. Moses told the Israelites that way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look it up if you're quick enough. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant. Secondly, to make good use of it. Yes, provide for our family. Proverbs 13.22, for example. Work hard and save for the future. Proverbs 6.6. But also use it for God's concerns. What are they? God is concerned with the orphan and the widow. And consequently, he's concerned with how the wealthy treat them. That is how they use their wealth to help the orphan and the widow. And the most important use of our wealth? Uh, to advance the gospel. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, 
so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The rich fool did not understand and obey the greatest commandment. Clive said it a minute ago. Love God, love your neighbour. We know this because he did not see where his gifts came from and did not use them as God intended him to, to glorify God. The rich fool thought that all he had was gained entirely on his own merit. But everything we have in this world is ultimately provided as a gift from God. And everything we have in this world has an expiry date. Wasn't his outlook short-sighted? Here is Jesus' investment advice. Matthew chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The rich man's investment strategy was ultimately set on failure. He had a great opportunity with the resources he had to lay down treasure where it really counts, to use his wealth to benefit his poorer neighbours, like John Lang did, to help teach their children, to further God's purposes. But he filled his barns with grain instead. Fool. Now you might be saying to yourself, well I'm not wealthy so this doesn't apply to me or I'm too young to think about what to do with my barn yet. Mm, No. These truths apply not just to material gifts but to all our gifts. (coughs) We all have gifts. Look about. Gifts of music. Gifts of joy. Gifts of intelligence and hospitality and so on and so on. But they're not called gifts for nothing. They can give us great joy and pleasure. And much as we think we deserve credit for them, we don't. They came from our creator, free. It's up to us to develop them and to use them correctly. God gave them to us to build his church, his community. Remember, Jesus is Lord of all. And that means that he is Lord over the whole of our lives, including our wealth, our work, our time, our relationships with others, the lot. Now, unfortunately, we often misuse our gifts. Preparing this, I thought of a dozen or more gifts of various thoughts, and I can see a lot of them around this room. Athleticism, beauty, leadership, public speaking, and so on. In every case, it was easy to see that the gift could be used well for the good of God's people and for the good of the world around us, or for ill. For example, George Whitfield. He had a great gift for public speaking that he used for advancing the gospel so that crowds of thousands turned out to hear him speak. In his lifetime, he preached about 18,000 sermons I've only done two, well, one and a half, to, pos- 
to possibly 10 million people without radio, television or the internet. The hearers had to be on the same hillside. On the other hand, Adolf Hitler also had a great gift for public speaking. He did not use it for the good of mankind. Not all of them. Consider your gifts. What are they? And what are you doing with them? Be honest with yourselves. We all have gifts and abilities. Don't be falsely modest. Ask yourself and ask God in your prayers, how can I develop my gifts to be more effective and valuable for God's purposes? You won't regret it. You're storing up treasure in heaven. Investments are not just financial. When you invest in people, in time spent with them, in friendships, be generous with your gifts. Material if you have them, but if you don't, you have other abilities. And encourage one another in our gifts. Many of us, probably myself excluded, have the gift of modesty. The trouble is that that hides our other gifts, even from ourselves. So if your brother or sister has a gift that they're not using, tell them. Encourage them. Help each other to develop them and use them for God's service. Using our gifts well, meaning our wealth and our abilities too, means using them in line with God's purposes and according to his pattern. Remember, Jesus is Lord of every part of our lives. Wealth and talents are tools for ministry, not materialism. So invest time with God. Ask for help to align our hearts to his will, to see what he's given us, and for his guidance in what we should do with it. And to get personal for a moment, there's a clear challenge here to myself. Should should I, and there's friend of mine is sitting in there who I work with, right? Should I continue to work for a comfortable and lazy retirement one day? Or say to myself, I have enough now to do God's work, to use the gifts and talents he's given me to further his purposes. Time for a review, perhaps. May I suggest, humbly and with no implied or intended rebuke, that it would be valuable to every one of us here this evening to have a regular personal review, prayerfully to reconsider our wealth, our resources and our gifts, to ask, what has God given them to us for? To consider how we could develop the gifts that we have, how we can invest in them, how we can invest in treasure in heaven as our first priority. I honestly believe that our lives will be more fulfilled, more fruitful, and more joyful if we do. Andrew Carnegie was born in 1835 in Dunfermline in Scotland, the son of a weaver. He emigrated to the USA with his family when he was 13 years old and he started to work as a weaver. He worked his way up to become a great industrialist, one of the builders of America and one of the world's richest men. He was the sort of Bill Gates of 1900. Um, 
By 1889, his steel company was the largest in the world. And when he sold up in 1901, his wealth stood at $380 million. That's the equivalent to over $80 billion in today's money. In his early life, he'd been opposed to organised religion, but in his last few years, he attended a Presbyterian church in New York. And through those last 18 years of his life, he used his vast wealth to found schools and universities and libraries and other foundations to the benefit of his neighbours and for the promotion of world peace, and many of them are still going. And we've all heard of Carnegie Mellon University, for example, in the US. After his death, his last $30 million was given to foundations, charities and to pensioners. Andrew Carnegie famously said, to die rich is to die disgraced. A time will come when we present the fruits of our gifts before Jesus, who is appointed judge and arbiter over all of us. All the stuff we gathered here and now will be seen for what it is, past its sell-by date, and of no lasting value. Let's not be disgraced. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see that all we have, our wealth and our abilities, come from you and have been given to us for your purposes. Give us wisdom to understand how to use them according to your will. Amen.